Following the death of Absalom in his great battle of leading the children of Israel in a revolt against his uh, father, it created a uncomfortable dilemma for the 12 tribes of Israel, all of whom had, who had joined him in the rebellion against David. There were significant numbers of men who were a part of the different 12 tribes that did not align with Absalom, and they streamed into David's kind of wilderness fortification and joined David's army in the hopes that he would defeat Absalom and he would remain the king of Israel. But the power brokers, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, they threw their power behind the revolt of Absalom. And when Absalom was killed in battle, which was an outcome that they had not factored in, to them there was no possibility that David would survive this particular attack. Solomon, uh, uh, Absalom's numbers were too great. And, and that speaks to us of the fact that it was a miracle of God. That David not only survived, but he won the battle. It wasn't just his ability to pick the high ground and the territory that the battle was fought in and his expertise. It was a miracle of God. So now they've got this uncomfortable situation where they have backed the wrong side in a rebellion. And now they're deciding amongst themselves, how in the world are we going to reapproach David because to a man almost within the tribe, they realized that David is really our only alternative in terms of who we invite to be the king of Israel. That the right thing to do is to make him the king once again. The northern 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and they're called Israel here, they uh, began to deliberate among one another about should we bring David, shouldn't we bring David. And while they're discussing all of this and deciding what they're going to do, they had come to the conclusion that they needed to reinvite David to be the king of Israel once again. But while they were discussing all of this and short of offering David a formal invitation, David approaches his tribe, the tribe of Judah in the south, and they, it's Judah and Benjamin really, the two tribes, and he approaches them and asks them, essentially, why don't you extend an invitation? I'm flesh and bone and, and blood. And so why don't you extend the invitation to me to return as king? And the tribe of Judah, once they had had their fears uh, kind of um, comforted that David was not going to return and become the king and, and meet out a destruction on them for their traitorous treatment of him, they invited him to become the king of Israel once again. And Judah met David and his family and his party as they were crossing the Jordan River out of what is modern-day Jordan into Israel and on their way to Jerusalem to be the king of Israel for many more years. While they're doing that, the heads of the other ten tribes, the tribes of Israel, they intercept David and the tribe of Judah, and they enter into an argument, and they say, what are you trying to sneak him back in to be the king? You're doing it because you expect David to give you privileges and this kind of thing, and you've cut us out from being a part of this celebration. And they felt threatened by it, and their motives were very pure, and an argument developed between 
uh, the ten tribes and the two tribes, but the tribe of Judah and Benjamin more more fierce in their argument, kind of a shout down of some kind, that the ten tribes backed off. They lost the argument. But the argument didn't sit well in the losing of the argument with a member of one of those ten tribes by the name of Sheba. And uh, that's where we pick things up this evening. Now, there happened to be one there, again, who was... Uh, probably been a part of the argument, didn't like the outcome of the argument. And so there happened to be one there, a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of uh, Bikri, a Benjamite. And he proceeded to, as a rebel, this is what rebels do, to lead a, a rebellion against this, bringing David back into the king again. He blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David. He's calling the, uh, uh, the, the, ten tri- the, the tribes of Israel to abandon following uh, David, nor do we have any inheritance in the son of Jesse. He won't call David uh, king. He disrespects him in all of this. Uh, we don't, David has nothing to do with us. We have nothing to do with David. Let David do his thing, but we don't need to support it. Every man to his tents, O Israel, and, and, uh, to, and, and in other words, go back to your homes. Let's reject this, making David the king uh, once again. And so every man of Israel deserted David, and they followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah from the... Uh, from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So they continued to escort David uh, from the Jordan River into uh, Jerusalem. It's amazing. Five minutes earlier, they are fighting over the privilege of being able to be the tribe or tribes that gets the credit for making David king once again. And once they don't get their way, they, they join Sheba in his rebellion against David as the king. I mean, we're not talking about a bunch of uh, hoodlums on the street. We're talking about God's people. I mean, how fickle and quickly they turn on this rebellion that Sheba leads. Now, I... I'm a law and order guy, just through and through. It's in me, not just from the Bible, but it's in my DNA. I, I, I like law. I like order. I like justice. I dislike injustice. I like fairness. I don't like when fairness is partial. And here is this guy by the name of Sheba. He rises up and he's described as a rebel. And rebels are, they say that if you took our bodies and you kind of melted them down to whatever they're worth, about 17 bucks in terms of uh, the minerals you could get out of them and the whatever, there's enough in us to make a couple of pencils, I think, and something else, you know. But this guy's a rebel. And you look all over the world, there are certain people who are only good at revolts. That's all they're good for. And they consider it to be a virtue, to lead one revolution after another, whether in a family or in a church or in this relationship or that relationship. You look all around the world at how many men rise up 
They have a capacity for rebellion. They overthrow and gain the control of an entire nation and then drive it into the ground and starve the entire population of the nation because all they know how to do is rebel. They don't know how to then rule after they do rebel. It's a lot easier to burn a building down than to build one. So rebels, it's, it's no great talent to be a rebel. And this is what Sheba is uh, described as and his motto and those that are like him, whether within a church or within uh, the family of God. And that's what he's doing here in an Old Testament context. Their motto is either give me my way or you're going to have a revolt on your hands. And this is this is the way that he worked and the way uh, that they work. And so he calls for this rebellion by blowing the trumpet. He is essentially signaling to the people to gather around him in the rebellion against David. It's an unrighteous rebellion. God wants David to be the king. God's got at least ten more years for him to rule the nation of Israel. He has no interest in Sheba becoming the king of, uh, of Israel. And so the whole motive behind the rebellion is not the result of some wrongdoing in David's life or on his part, but it's just Sheba's pride and his selfishness and his spirit of rebellion. And so the nation divides and this time uh, it divides by uh, a civil war as the men of Israel then withdraw and uh, went after Sheba. And so things begin to move. In a, I mean, he hasn't even hardly got across the river and he's got another Absalom situation going on uh, in, in his life. And so they came to the house of David. David came to his house in Jerusalem and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and were violated by Absalom. He put them in seclusion, continued to materially uh, support them for the rest of their lives. But he never again had sexual relationships with them. And so they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood in that sense. So they were made comfortable but uh, no longer had that kind of access to David. And the king said to Amasa, who is the brother of Joab, assemb- uh, I'm sorry, not uh, the brother of Joab, he's a nephew, uh, a cousin of Joab. David had made Amasa the, the uh, commander-in-chief as a part of kind of reconciling with the tribe of Judah. So he said to Amasa, who had led, uh, disastrously led Absalom's troops into battle, he said to him, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present yourself. David looks at this rebellion uh, by Sheba and he recognizes the danger of it and he wants to put an end to it very quickly. I think he realizes, we're going to see in another verse or so, he realized that he had given his son Absalom way too much room. He had underestimated the willingness of the people to follow in a rebellion and, uh, uh, and, and felt responsibility, I'm sure, for that. So he's going to nip this rebellion at the bud, gives Amasa just three days to assemble an army. They were largely already there in Jerusalem, then to present himself with this army to then begin a pursuit of Sheba. And so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time, the three days which David had appointed to him. So this isn't a good sign related to Amasa, his first responsibility uh, as uh, David's commander-in-chief, very unprofessional and uh, 
and uh, really a disturbing lack of leadership on his part. Speed was of the essence. David recognized that. And then this guy is kind of getting it done whenever he can get done. So he's not a faithful man. And so David said to uh, Abishai, who is Joab's brother, uh, he didn't, um, David did not go to Joab to lead the army uh, against, uh, against uh, Sheba because by this time he has learned that Joab was responsible for the death of his son in the battle and he has, you know, removed him as, as his commander in chief. And so he goes to the next kind of bravest, most battle experienced man in his army to Joab's brother Abishai, and he said, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. This is a more dangerous situation. And take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. Let's get him before he gets into a fortified city, and we've got to lay siege to that city, and this becomes a big, drawn-out affair. David's not interested in, in a protracted uh, civil war in the nation at this, uh, at this time, having just come out of something like that. And so Joab's men, uh, there's a group of men apparently who were uh, very loyal to Joab, and uh, so they joined with this force with Abishai, along with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, all the mighty men. These were David's kind of uh, secret service, his, his bodyguard. And then all of the mighty men, they went out after Abishai in this battle. We would call them special forces. These are very, very elite fighting men. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, and when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So apparently he came to Jerusalem late and Joah and David tells him, listen, we've already moved on without you here. The forces are already on their way. They're under Abishai. Here's where you can catch up to them. And so Amasa then enters into the camp. Now, Joab was dressed in, ar- in battle armor and uh, on it was a belt with a sword fashioned in its sheath at his hips, and he was go. And as he was going forward, uh, it fell out. And so, um, it, it, apparently, Joab adjusted his sword on his belt so that it fell from uh, the sheath as he stepped forward to greet Amasa, which is what he's going to uh, do here. And Amasa assumes that the sword has fallen to the ground as an accident. Joab naturally picks it up, and uh, and here is. Uh, Amasa not thinking anything of it, that his life is in any danger as a result of it. It would be different if Joab had pulled it out of his sheath and was coming at him with it. And uh, so he thinks things are perfectly safe. And so Joab approached Amasa, who had taken his position as commander in chief, and he said, are you in health, my brother? Uh, Literally, shalom, peace to him. He calls him my brother because they were related uh, by blood. And Joab took Amasa by the beard. This was common to grab him by the beard and then uh, to, to kiss. So he took him by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice that the sword was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach with such force that his entrails, this is loose translation would be guts, uh, poured out onto the ground. So very, very powerful. And uh, He did not strike him again. Joab knew how to kill a man with just one strike. Very seasoned uh, soldier. uh, And thus 
Amasa died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so Joab kind of retakes command of Israel's forces just as if uh, nothing had happened here. This is how kind of cold-blooded he is in terms of anybody threatening his position uh, in the government. And the pursuit is rejoined to, to go after Sheba. Now, meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa as his body's lying right there on the road. And he said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. And so uh, he uh, challenges all of the soldiers to side with Joab uh, in this act that he's committed, this murder of uh, Amasa to um, uh, side with Joab as an expression of their support for Joab and for David. They're less than excited about uh, being associated with this act. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, in other words, they looked at what had happened here and they didn't want to say hip, hip, parade for Joab. This is what should happen. They looked at it and horrified them. This was an unrighteous, cold blooded murder of a human being and, and a Jew. So they didn't want to allot, they didn't want, they wanted to follow Joab in order to bring victory for Israel, but they did not want their loyal to be misunderstood as, as uh, condoning this particular act. And so it brings the whole movement of the army to a screeching halt. They're all just standing still looking at this, this man who is uh, dead before them, uh, murdered by uh, another man. And so this, Man that called for loyalty, he moved Amasa's body uh, from the highway, get it off the main thoroughfare to the field, threw a garment over him so that nobody would notice him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. Uh, People were not as enthusiastic as he was for uh, the cold-bloodedness of Joab. And when he was removed from the highway, all of the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to uh, Abel and Beth Ma'akah and to all and all the Barites. And so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. So this army is kind of getting larger and larger as they make their way through Israel from the south where Jerusalem is up toward the north where they're ultimately going to fight against him. And so um, they uh, they came They came and they besieged him, Sheba, in Abel of Beth Ma'akah, and that's a fortified city that he had hid himself behind. Uh, He's so important that he, uh, just like the terrorists today who put themselves in civilian populations, they're so important that uh, zillions of civilians can... Uh, die just as long as they live. And, uh, and so this is what he does, puts himself in a civilian uh, situation where a lot of innocent blood would need to be shed in order to uh, get to him. And so very strategic move. He's going to discover that this city uh, didn't, wasn't interested in being held hostage uh, by him or his plans. He just picked the wrong city. Uh, we could wish there were more cities like this one as we'll, uh, today as we read on a little bit. 
So here is Joab. He's a man of action, shows up at the city that uh, Sheba is hiding in, and he begins to build a siege mound against the city. And uh, it stood by the rampart, and all of the men who were with Joab, they got out the battering rams, and they began to batter the wall to break down the wall and to enter into the city. Now, this is really funny. This is... Ladies, if you think your husband is focused and unable to do two or three things at the same time, Joab, well, they can do two or three things at the same read the paper and talk to you at the same time, watch television and talk with it's multitasking today. We give these fancy names to this stuff. But here's Joab. He shows up and he just starts beating down the wall with the troops. He doesn't even approach the city and the leaders of the city or shout over the wall why he's doing what he's doing. They're completely mystified by this army that shows up one day, Joab the general, and now they're trying to break down our wall. And in essence, for some reason, they've declared war on us. So Joab apparently is kind of a can-do guy. He's not very much on the communication side. And, uh, and so he just begins to go after this thing. Now, thankfully, in the city, uh, there was a wise woman there. And she cried out from the city and to get over the boom, boom, boom against the walls trying to break through. And so she cried from the city, here, here. Mm-hmm. Very polite. It's a little English to me. She said, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? She and he answered, uh, I, the am is in the town. I, this is a man of few words. I won't go into the pirate thing for you. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. I'm listening. And so she spoke and she saying they used to talk in former times, saying they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. So apparently the city of Abel was a city that was famous for wisdom, for people bringing disputes in the land of Israel that they could not solve with their elders or their leadership. Uh, in their cities elsewhere in the land, they say, let's take it to Abel. That's a city that's known for wisdom and they solve problems there. So things don't have to turn into a war. So she says, that's the that's the reputation that we have around here. She said, I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. We're not who picked this fight. <laughs> this is a peaceful city. And you seek to destroy a city and me, a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab, what in the world are you doing here? And Joab answered and said, far be it from me, far, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not so. I haven't come to wipe out an innocent city or to shed innocent blood. Here's our problem. A man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, he's raised his hand in revolt against the king, against David. And he's found refuge in your city and he's hiding in your midst. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. And so the woman said to Joab, watch, 
His head will be thrown to you over the wall. I think Joab and, and this woman were separated at birth or something. This is a kindred. He's a, she just said, why didn't you say so? We don't, you don't have to tear down a whole city to do this. We know how to take care of this. So apparently this is a city known for wisdom and known for some other things too. Now go around messing around it. At the city. And so she takes, and I like that, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. So there's Joab, just kind of, I don't know how long it'll wait. The woman said in her wisdom, and, it, the, and then the woman in her wisdom went to all of the people of the city. Explain the whole situation. This coward's come in here and he's put us, he's brought us into a private war between him and David. And he doesn't care how many of us get slaughtered as long as he survives the thing. And the family, the, the fathers and the heads and their wives and the children. And they think about all the destructions that's going to happen in order to save a rebel's life here and all. And, and so as they uh, spoke it over, then they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, threw it out to Joab, came sailing over the wall. He blew a trumpet. Then to call off the battle, because at the death of Sheba, now the rebellion is over. They withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. And so Joab returned uh, to the king at Jerusalem. And so the head of the rebellion was killed. The rebellion ceased and everybody returned back then to Jerusalem. In verse 23, we have a, a second listing of David's cabinet. An earlier listing, I think, was in chapter eight, probably a list of David's cabinet. Uh, governmental cabinet early in his reign. This is the cabinet uh, that he had uh, a little bit uh, toward the toward the end of his uh, reign. Probably ha this is what took uh, form following the the rebellion of Sheba. Now Joab was over the army of Israel, and so uh, Joab resumed control of of the army of of Israel. Uh, but David would never ever forget uh, Joab's. Uh, shedding of innocent blood uh, over and over again in, uh, in, his, in his life. And David is going to order the death of Joab capital punishment in accordance with the law of Moses for murder. In order, uh, at the end of his life, David is going to ask, Sheba, um, ask Solomon to take care of that and uh, to cleanse the land of the stain of the shedding of innocent blood on Joab's part. But in the meantime, he remember, remained uh, the commander-in-chief of the army. And then uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, David's uh, bodyguards. Uh, Adoram was in charge of revenue. This is new to this list from the last list. I don't know if this is any interest to any of you. I won't ask you. I'll just merely bring it up. But in the earlier list, interesting enough, there was no office in David's cabinet having to do with uh, taxes. This is the first mention of taxes of this kind uh, in the history of, of Israel under David. Probably in the early part of David's reign, there was no need for taxation in order to support the government and the laws of the land and all of this, because in the conquest of all of the, the nations around them after they had been attacked by them in the conquest of these nations and the wealth that was gained in that conquest, there probably wasn't a need for any taxes. But now, many years after that, now there was a need for uh, taxation in order to support this uh, central government. And so it appears. Adoram 
in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Sheba was the scribe. Zedek and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the uh, Jairite, was a chief minister under David. He took the place of David's sons who were operating uh, as, uh, as ministers uh, on the cabinet. And they're no longer uh, made of, they're no longer a part of, of David's cabinet uh, formally, which is a, a, a good thing. Now, there was a famine in the days of David. And uh, for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Famine was probably caused by a drought. Not all droughts that occur in the world are caused by God. But there is a uh, God is able to use drought to get the attention of his people. And that's what he does here. So probably drought uh, year number one drought. Nobody thought much of it. I mean, that that's just the way things go. The weather patterns. Right. And they had plenty of food in storage. Year number two, another drought. All right. Things are getting a little bit tighter. Remember, they didn't have the margins that we have today, the storage capacities and all. They kind of depended on food coming around on an annual basis. And so year number two, another drought. And now we're going into the storehouses to get food once again. Not much being produced. By the time this happened a third time, David uh, realizes that this is supernatural. God, there's something uh, that God is behind this drought and the famine, and he's trying to get our attention. And so David does the wise thing, and that is he uh, then consults the Lord uh, in prayer. So he, he inquired of the Lord as to cause of all of this, and the Lord responded to this, uh, this inquiry, and he answered, it is because of Saul and, very important to notice, his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, the background of all of this comes from the book of Joshua about 400 years earlier. God had given the land of Canaan, Israel, to the Jews. And he had said, this is the promised land. I give it to you. And I want you to utterly destroy all the inhabitants of the land because of their wickedness and because of their sin. There was a group of people who were living in the land at, by the name of the Gibeonites. They realized that Israel is going to conquer this land and they didn't want to be destroyed. And so they pretended that they had come uh, from a very far distant land outside of the land proper of, of Canaan or the promised land. And they wanted to in, uh, begin a treaty with the children of Israel, a, a mutually beneficial treaty. And uh, the children of Israel were a little suspicious and they said, how do we know you're not from the land and, and that you really come from a far place? And they said, well, when we left, we had brand new sandals on and look how tattered they are. And, and the bread that we had was fresh out of the oven and look at the mold that's on it now. And so they gave the appearance of, of not being in the land and Joshua failed to uh, inquire of the Lord and prayer related to all of this and uh, he was fooled, it says he, took, he took, uh, took stock of their victuals. He made a decision based upon the physical rather than asking God. And they were deceived by the Gibeonites, entered into a covenant with them that they would, not, uh, that they would look out for one another's benefit, i.e. they would not destroy the Gibeonites. And then a few days later, they came to realize that the Gibeonites were a part of the land and had been set aside uh, to be judged and to be destroyed. But because even though Israel was deceived in the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites, God determined that that covenant 
uh, was to be kept. It was to be honored. And so the Gibeonites continued to live among the children of Israel as servants. And then almost 400 years later, and there's no record of this in the scriptures, but we can surmise it from the, the account here. Almost 400 years later, King Saul gets it into his mind to engage in a program of ethnic cleansing against the Gibeonites. God never called him to do that, and he just comes up with it uh, on his own, and he's going to rise up and utterly exterminate the Gibeonites within the land. And so he breaks the covenant and, uh, and breaks it by shedding their blood. And uh, this, was, this attempt to uh, cleanse the land of the Gibeonites was the underlying cause for this drought and the famine and this breaking of this covenant. And so this blood guilt uh, for this ungodly attempt to slaughter the Gibeonites, it remained on Saul and on his family. And, and according to the law of Moses, murder left unpunished, it polluted the land. Just one, just one murder, one shedding of innocent blood, one homicide, one cold-blooded, one first-degree murder or second-degree murder defiled the whole land in God's eyes until that murder was brought to justice. Think about how much blood, innocent blood, is shed in our world on a daily basis and how God must look at this world from in the womb all the way through to every city of the United States and around the world. It's a big deal. It's a big deal what happened here, the shedding of innocent blood. And you notice that the Lord wasn't uh, just upset with Saul, but in verse 1, with his bloodthirsty house. And that tells us that the responsibility for this slaughter involved more people than Saul himself. And it, it equally included bloodthirsty men that were in his household, that is, were his relatives. And all of this was really, really troubling to God, this attempt to exterminate the Gibeonites, because Israel at that time was a theocracy. It was ruled by God. Everything that they did was supposed to represent God before the world. And when Saul rises up and tries to utterly destroy the Gibeonites, well, word of that, within days, went out throughout the entire Gentile world. The region of the whole nation, all the nations around Israel. The word came out that the God of Israel, they're representing God, the God of Israel doesn't care anything about Gentiles. He wants them all dead because the king of Israel, who is the great representative of God in that nation, has endeavored to exterminate all of the Gibeonites. The Bible says for us as God's people, what we do, we're ambassadors for Christ, the Bible says. People come to conclusions about our God by listening to us and watching us. So a terrible, terrible thing has been done, number one, against the Gibeonites. And then number two, against the reputation of God in the world. So terribly misrepresented here in, in all of this. And so the Lord wants this thing uh, to be dealt with. And so David went to the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. The Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. 
The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, as I've said, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. We're better. We're going to wipe them out and this kind of thing. And therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement? How can we make this thing right to you so our relationship can be proper and healthy once again? That you may bless the inheritance uh, of the Lord. So how can this mutually beneficial relationship between us be restored? And the Gibeonites said to him, we don't want any silver or gold from Saul. Money will not be recompensed. The slaughter of our, who knows how many, of our sons, our daughters, our fathers, our uncles, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, our mothers. No silver or gold from Saul or his house. Can't, we can't be bought with money on this. Nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And the idea is this. We don't want the bloodshed of a single innocent person in Israel. We do not want to repay murder with murder in making this thing right. And so David said, whatever you say, I'll do for you. And they answered, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, Saul, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So David keeps his oath that he had made with Jonathan. Saul did not keep the oath that had been made with the Gibeonites. And so the king, David, took uh, uh, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, uh, the daughter of uh, Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, this was one of Saul's concubines, took two sons from uh, that union, and the five sons of Michal, uh, uh, better uh, uh, to have Mereb in there, because, or Michael, because Michael was uh, the, also the daughter of Saul. She married David, but she died childless, and she was never uh, married to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Moholahite. And so it, it should be uh, Merab, uh, who was one of the daughters of Saul, should be in there instead of Michael, as it is in some of, of the Greek uh, manuscripts. And so he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the hill before the Lord, and so they fell, all seven together. They were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest, or uh, what is uh, April. So uh, here is this uh, request that is made and uh, by David. To the, they make to David and uh, two sons from Saul's concubine, Rizpah, chosen. Uh, other five sons, all sons of Merab, uh, were chosen and uh, in order to be handed over to the Gibeonites in, in all of this. Now, again, God's law explicitly prohibited the punishment of a son for the sins of his father. All the way through uh, the law of Moses, it declared that, and indeed the whole Old Testament. And since there is 
No condemnation of David in the text for turning over the seven. And since God apparently honored the action by ending the famine, it it seems very, very likely that the seven uh, who were executed had joined Saul uh, and been personally involved in this ethnic cleansing uh, of the Gibeonites. And they bore uh, guilt related to Uh, this atrocity that had been uh, waged against them. Now, the actions of Rizpah, who lost two sons in this, uh, she took sackcloth and she spread it for herself on a rock in order to get shelter from the sun and all from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And so she stayed there uh, near the bodies of, of her two sons until the rains came. Obviously, when it started to rain, this was an indication that uh, what had happened here had appeased the justice of God related to this uh, ethnic cleansing and uh, and that uh, that the, the blood guilt was lifted off of the nation of Israel. She did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, uh, the concubine of Saul, had done. And then David went and he took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, uh, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And so something about looking at Rizpah and her respect for Uh, The bodies of her sons uh, prompted something within David. He remembered that Jonathan and Saul, when they had died and and their uh, bodies had been hung up on the city wall of Jabesh, on the the wall of um, Bet-Shan, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead came and they gathered their bodies and they buried them. But always a person wanted their bodies bodies to be buried at the family tomb in their hometown. That was important, where they'd been born and raised. And so David then uh, allows this burial. Uh, He orchestrates to make sure that it happens. And so they performed uh, all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. His justice was satisfied by what occurred here. And um, he began once again to hear the prayers of the land probably prayers for rain. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him, uh, went with him. No, they didn't. David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And during this battle, David grew faint. Now, David's an older man at this point in time, about 60, uh, 60 years old. Um, You're not a 20 year old any longer. So you, 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 you're, he grew faint. His, he, he ran out of energy quicker than you are when you're young. And, uh, and in this moment of vulnerability, uh, one of the, uh, all, we're going to talk all about the, uh, the four sons of Goliath. Their deaths are described in this passage. The giant that David had uh, slew with 
uh, with the rock and the sling. And so then one of the sons of the giant, his name was Ishbi Benob. If you don't like that name, you take it up with him. I, I don't think anybody made fun of him in first grade when they went through the role. Ishbi Benob, oh, there's the, he's 11 feet tall, leave him alone, first grade. So he was uh, one of the sons of the giant, Goliath, and the weight of whose uh, bronze spear, the, the head of, of that uh, spear, spearhead, uh, was 300 shekels, seven point, uh, seven and a half pounds, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. So this is a strong guy. I don't know how many of you have ever done shot put in this kind of thing. So you take a shot put seven and a half pounds and see how far you can throw it. This guy's got it as a spearhead, and he can throw it a great distance on a straight line and impale a man. This is a pretty big guy. I don't want to meet him in battle. So he comes on David. David's weak at this moment. He's going to take David out. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to David's aid, struck the Philistine and killed him, nick of time. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So these guys get protective of David in his old age, said, you're the lamp of Israel. You're the leader of the country. Nobody has your abilities and and your history with with God and with the people of Israel. You get killed, you know. 50,000 people in Israel can go out and fight in a battle. We only got one king. What are you doing here going out here? And it was love that made David realize that in the latter part of his life, the great value that he would bring to the nation would not no longer be his physical strength in battle, but his relationship with God and, and what he what he uh, knew and, and, uh, in terms of experience in leading the nation. So they said, no more battles for you. Now, and, and to David's credit, he, uh, he obeyed them. Now, the death of Goliath's second son. Now, it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then uh, this guy, uh, the Hushahai, uh, uh, he killed Saph. And uh, who was also one of the sons of a giant. So the second of the giant, second of Goliath's son was killed in a different battle. And again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of uh, Jare uh, Origen, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother, uh, or really, the, it literally is the relative or the son of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So this guy's a big guy too. And then the death of the fourth son of Goliath. Yet again, there was a war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So anybody remember that toy six, uh, six finger? Growing up as a kid, how many of you? Just quick show of hands. Okay, let's see. God bless you, my generation. Six finger, six finger. Yeah. Never got one, but I, I wanted it. I wanted a six finger. So anyway, this guy had him by birth. So I heard somebody say related to this, we think, well, it's just one more finger and one more toe. But apparently when you see somebody, a big giant guy like this, and they've got six toes and they've got six fingers. It just kind of looks like their hands and their feet go on for miles. There's something about the extra digit that is just like 
you know, will paralyze you kind of with fear. So this guy had them. And so when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, uh, killed him. And so the death of these uh, of these four sons uh, of of Goliath uh, kind of brought a, the reign of terror and, and all uh, caused by the Philistines against uh, Israel to an end, at least as it related to the giants. This gives us, I think, some interesting insight into David's battle with Goliath in the Elah Valley as uh, is, is a young boy. He takes that sling. He goes to the brook to get stones. And you think, well, if he had so much faith, why did he grab five stones? Why didn't he just grab one stone if he knew he was just going to take out that, that giant Goliath with one stone right in his forehead? And here we get maybe an indication of why he grabbed one stone for each of Goliath's sons, figuring that they would, because of the whole way that they looked at the shedding of blood and revenge killing and the whole thing, follow his, uh, their father into battle in order to take on David. And so he took five stones in anticipation of needing to take them on all at once. But as things would turn out, he would take them on uh, over a long period of time, uh, one at a time, Israel would. Let's turn in our Bibles here. It's just kind of a preparation for communion to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 